0: All right, welcome to our Sunday service. Glad you're worshiping with us. It's good to have John Salud back from the Philippines. Welcome back home. It's good to have the Nichols back from South Africa. Welcome back home. And of course, it's good for everyone else here visiting as guests. And once again, Radon and Rachel from Wellington, it's a pleasure to have you here. And we have several mums uh, in the audience as well that are, uh, I think Paul's mom is here, Paul Stoneman. That's correct. So welcome. Good to have you here. And we also have uh, Kobe's sister visiting from... America and many others that that are are visiting as well I just wish I knew your names and I but we'll we'll talk in the fellowship and we'll say hello Uh, of course it is Mother's Day so we want to take a moment just to celebrate all the mothers and um, that's one way to do it and uh You may not know the origin of Mother's Day, and so I'm just going to enlighten us a little bit so we can have a more fuller understanding of of Mother's Day. And so the first instance, if if you search through history of what would be called Mother's Day, was actually referred to as Mothering Day. It was in the 1600s, and so in Europe, what people would do is they would return to their mother church. And it was called Mothering Day. And what they would do is, along the way, they would pick flowers for their mothers. And so it would be a day that was basically returning back to church, the church they were baptized in. Um, So that's kind of the first instance of what would be considered Mother's Day, was known as Mothering Day. All right? So then you forward about 300 years, uh, because that eventually faded. And then in the 1900s, there's a woman in America named Ann Jarvis, and she's from West Virginia. Not to be confused with Virginia, okay? Virginia is east of West Virginia... Geographically, but West Virginia—that's where she lived—and she had this idea that let's start a mothers' club during um, close to one of the civil, close to the Civil War, and let's let's allow the mothers to really teach their children and how to take care of them. So she started basically a Mother's Day club. And after the Civil War, what they would do is they would meet with Confederate and Union soldiers and try to reconcile them. So that's kind of an interesting. Origin of how the whole idea. Look at look at the moms. Go moms, you know, moms. They're um, trying to reconcile people that had been in war. And then uh, when this lady Anne, her 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 own mother died, um, she lobbied for an official recognition in America for mothers. And so in 1908, that was kind of the first official Mother's Day as we know it. And it was at a church in West Virginia, which is not Virginia. Just to be clear. But then like six years later, the president, Woodrow Wilson, said, let's make this a day on the calendar. So 1914 is when officially Mother's Day is recognized in America. Of course, it's celebrated all over the world. That kind of reignited the mothering day in Europe where people would go back to their mother church. They would celebrate their mothers and all of that. And so that's kind of the origin. And then today on Mother's Day, there's more calls made than any other day in the year. So that's a, that's, a, that's a notice to all the men to call their mom and, and increase the phone activity today. So thank you, my mom. Uh, thank you, Megan. She's serving in the kids' ministry right now. But And thanks to all the mothers who've sacrificed so much and, and really done a great job at bringing all of us up. Amen? Happy Mother's Day. So now you know the origin of Mother's Day. Let's talk about the origin of what a church service looked like. How's that for a segue? So it would be very interesting to travel back 2,000 years and sit in a church service, right? And so... That, that's very important to understand to understand our text today in 1 Corinthians 14. Okay? So let's, let's take a little thought experiment and travel back 2,000 years and visit a Sunday in Corinth. This is around 50 AD when Paul visits and plants the church. That's Acts chapter 18. And then about five years later, he writes this letter, the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, if we were to visit, let's say we are, whisk back, and, and we find ourselves in Corinth, it's a city of about half a million people. And it's a very prosperous city. It's a very multicultural city. And so that's the kind of blend we would find if we went to church there. But let's say we came to church. And the first thing we notice is that those who had the wealthy, the more wealthy were already there eating. And then later, those that didn't have, the less fortunate, came afterwards. They they were supposed to celebrate a meal together, the Lord's Supper. But those who had came first, ate most everything. Those who didn't have came later. And that created a bit of division. So that's the first impression you would see coming to church. Not not necessarily a good one. Now, they didn't have services like they they do today, because we come and it's very orderly, right? There's people telling you where to go and when to do what and all that kind of stuff. But just to kind of reconstruct what church would look like in Corinth, here's a little bit of a demonstration, okay? And this is all spontaneous, this is not scripted, but this is just to get a feel for what you would have experienced coming to church in Corinth, okay? So what I want to do is ask a couple people just to stand up, and and I'll tell them uh, a couple of things they can say, and then we're going to kind of recreate what it looked like in Corinth, all right? So, Jono, you go ahead and stand up. Tyson, you you go ahead and stand up. Nick, brother love, you go ahead and stand up. Alberto, you go ahead and stand up. Carlos, you go ahead and stand up. Raymond, you go ahead and stand up. And I want at least five or six women to go ahead and stand up. Doesn't matter who, but let's see several women stand up. There's one, Tita. There's two, there's three, there's four, a couple more over this side. This side. Okay, that's good. That's good. And uh, so, so what would happen is you had several people speaking in tongues. <laughs> okay. And the, the purpose of the service today is not to talk about that gift but it's you, you'll see the point of this and they would speak in tongues without any interpretation. Okay? And they would overlap each other. So while one was speaking, another would start speaking. And while that one was speaking, another one would start speaking. And then it would kind of be chaos. So just to kind of get a feel for what that sounded like, I'm going to have Alberto speak in your mother tongue. You know, choose any phrase. And I want you to say it out loud in just a minute. Okay? Nick, I want you to choose any phrase from your mother tongue. And I want you to start, you know, you both start talking in your mother tongue. Carlos... I want you to start talking in your mother tongue. And then Tyson and Raymond, you you talk in in English, but I want you to try to preach. Because what was happening is there was tongues and there was people trying to prophesy. And this all happened simultaneously, okay? And Jono, I want you to, in the midst of this, just start worshiping God with a hymn from your heart. (laughs) Now... Now, while all that's taking place, I want the women who are standing to, to start to talk to each other and ask questions, what is going on? <laughs> Does anybody understand what is going on? Okay, that, that's what we're trying to recreate. So imagine, we're, we're in Corinth, okay? We're at church, we've just seen communion, or what's supposed to be communion, and now we come to what we expect to be a church service, and, and here we have Brother Alberto, who's, go for it, Alberto go for it Nick go for it Carlos go for it Raymond go for it Tyson go for it John O all right all right church is over church is over. <laughs> Saint, Saint, Carlos, see? This is what would happen. This is exactly what would happen. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, Amen. Hey man, that's church. So, when you left, you probably came more confused than when you arrived all right and and that's probably a dramatization, but that that is somewhat what was happening in Corinth, and so when you left, you'd be like. What did just happen? What did we encounter? Questions arise, and and, and one of the questions would be, what should be happening when we come to church? How many of you were edified by that experience? How many of you felt really encouraged and built up? Except Carl, I mean, he was was really fired up. I don't know what he was saying, but... (laughs) And then I did over here, Raymond said, hey, you need to listen to me, right? And so, but that's what was happening, okay? So with that in mind, let's pray and read First Corinthians 14. Now that we've kind of got an image of what church looked like 2,000 years ago, okay? Turn to your Bibles in First Corinthians chapter 14 and let's pray together. God, we're so grateful that you're a God of order and not chaos and i pray that as we read the scriptures your spirit really quickens our mind to to help us see the truth that you want us to see and to really understand what what should be happening in church and how that applies to us as individuals and how it applies to us as a church we're thankful for the communion to to follow jesus and the privilege of of having the bible in front of us and read it together we pray all this in christ's name Amen. Amen. Let's read the whole chapter together and talk about three points. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. A little bit more orderly. In verse 1. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Now, There's a lot of interest, and scholarly interest, and maybe you have personal interest in tongues. And the instances that it shows up in the book of Acts, it's always referring to a foreign language, but perhaps there is a bit more going on here where it says that they don't speak to people but they speak to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. And prophesying can be predicting something or just speaking the will of God. It's both of those things. Verse 4, anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I'd like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I'd rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. Not that the gifts are better, but one actually builds up publicly, one builds up privately. Verse 6, now, brothers and sisters, if I came to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds such as the pipe or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there's distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you, unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You'll just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If I then do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. And you've probably experienced that sitting in some kind of ceremony or service, hearing a foreign language, not having any idea what's being said in verse 12 so it is with you since you're eager for the gifts of the spirit try to excel in those that build up the church for this reason the one who speaks in a tongue should pray they may interpret what they say so there you see you can have more than one spiritual gift in this sense if you have the gift of tongues then you should also pray that you could interpret that in verse 14 for if I pray in a tongue my spirit prays but my mind is unfruitful so what shall I do? I'll pray with my spirit, but I also pray with my understanding. I'll sing with my spirit, but I also sing my understanding. Otherwise, when you're praising God in the Spirit, how can someone else, who is now put in the position of an inquirer, say, Amen to your thanksgiving, since you don't since they do not know what you are saying? You're giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. They kind of gauged Paul's spirituality by this. Criteria? Does he speak in tongues? And he never really did to them. And part of this is the reason why. And in verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But in the church, I'd rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers... And sisters, stop thinking like children in regard to evil, be infants. But in your thinking, be adults. And the law it is written, with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues then are not a sign. Tongues then are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. So if the whole church comes together... And everyone speaks in tongues. And inquirers or unbelievers come in. That's like your guests that you bring to church. Will they not say that you are out of your mind? <laughs> kind of like what we just witnessed A few minutes ago. But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they're convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their heart are laid bare, so they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Now it gets a little bit more interesting in verse 26. What shall we say then, brothers and sisters, when you come together, so when they came to church, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. That's kind of the bits of a Sunday service you would experience in Corinth. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two, or at the most, three should speak one at a time. And someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and should speak to himself and God. And then to the prophets, two or three prophets should speak. And the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. That's, that's, very, that's way not like we have in church now. There'd be no way, but like in the middle of a lesson, somebody says, hold on, excuse me, I have a revelation. What? okay, there's two ends of the spectrum there. One is like, okay, that's kind of crazy. And the other one is, how do we not know they have a revelation? Right? But this is what's going on in the midst of somebody speaking. If someone has a revelation and they're kind of like putting up their hand, then this instruction is I should stop and let that person speak. Verse 31, for you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. And I'm kind of Watching to see if anybody's suddenly inspired now. Verse 32, the spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. Meaning, if you see somebody speaking or wanting to speak, you have control of what you want to say or don't say. Verse 33, for God is not a God of disorder but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Verse 34, women should remain silent in the churches. Like what? This is Mother's Day. What are we talking about? They're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or did the word of God originate with you? This is directed back to the church in Corinth. Or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet, or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they themselves will be ignored. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. So there you have it. And hopefully that's a little bit more crystal clear now that we've had the experience of Corinth and so church would have been confusing and chaotic at best if you visited. And so Paul catches wind of this and writes for, uh, chapter 14 to correct their church services. And we do find some discussion about spiritual gifts in this chapter, but really that's not his main point. His main point is whatever happens should build up everybody. It should be done in a way that encourages the entire church. And we know this because the word that appears at least seven times in this passage is the word translated various different ways, but it essentially means edify. So in verse 3, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening. That's the word edify. Verse 4, if anyone, it's twice in this verse, anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves. But the one who prophesies edifies themselves. The church. Verse 5, it shows up again, so the church may be edified. Verse 12, if you want to be spiritual, be spiritual and stuff that builds up the church. Edify. Verse 17, you're giving thanks, but no one else is built up or edified. Verse 26, everything must be done so that the church may be built up. Over and over, that's the same Greek word translated seven times. So what he's saying, when you come to church, it shouldn't just be about you it should be about what builds everyone up and so let's look at three points that we can learn and apply to our own lives and our own church in the modern day amen Amen. point number one is always build up always always build up oikodame that's the Greek word that shows up seven times in this chapter and it shows up plenty of times in Paul's writing happy mother's day Megan (laughs) just trying to build up here. (laughs) This is a Greek word that normally refers to architecture. This, what we are sitting in, would be oikidamas, a building. Oikidame means to to build the actual structure. It's a term from architecture. So Paul uses that to say, when you come to church, you should be concentrating on building everyone up. Alright, so in verse 5, unless there's somebody, if you're speaking in a tongue and nobody's there to interpret, that doesn't build up the church. If everyone is speaking over one another, that doesn't build up the church. You might be built up as an individual, but the majority isn't. And in verse 6 through 12, unless there's clarity, he uses the trumpet and the harp and the pipe or the flute. You know, if if it's one single note, that doesn't really make a distinction, but if there's a clear call and there's clarity, people understand just like we experienced. There was no real clarity in that church service. If there's clarity, everybody can be built up. Corinth thought, look, if we're really spiritual, we speak in tongues and everybody will be impressed and everybody will be encouraged. Verse 20 through 22 says, well, Paul uses a case from the old Testament that people were speaking in tongues and they didn't really listen So he's trying to help them see, look, it's not just about coming to exercise your personal gift. It's not about coming to church to show off. It's about building up, right? And his point is always, always build up the church. Never come to do what only builds yourself up. Now you may have seen, I don't know if this is a phenomenon all over the world, but I I just find it always interesting. Anytime I pass some type of construction site. Now, this is not meant to be offensive if you work in construction. But there's, there's like heaps of them not working. And a few of them working. Like in any kind of road. Does anybody else witness that phenomenon? It's like, it's baffling to me. Like, what, what are those guys doing? And what is there, why is there only a few people working? So if you were to imagine church a literal building. And we came to church, all 150 of us, or however many is in here, and our job was to actually build a building. Then you could tell, visibly, who's coming to work, and who's coming to do nothing. Right? Right? I mean, it would be a very visible sign. I mean, in church, it's it's really hard to tell. It's not like I can scan the crowd right now and say, you know, nobody knows that stuff. But Paul says when you come to church, he uses this architecture term term to say everybody should come to build up, to be involved, to participate, not just to receive, not just to take. And so imagine that if we all, if we all, that was our task to build a church. And you've heard about my Prowess in building with the gate. You know, what would I be doing? What would John Salud be doing? He'd be taking pictures. <laughs> doing He'd be doing something. Raymond would be doing the electrical work. Alberto and Beatrice would be doing all the, you know, and I don't know what they'd be doing, but the, the cool stuff, man. And, uh, but, but, but we would see, like, and some people, are like, how can I give? How can I get in? And some people, are like, obviously, they don't need me or whatever, right? But it'd be a very visible sign. And Paul says that's what church should be like. Everybody's coming to participate. Now, the reality is, the world doesn't prepare us for that kind of experience, does it? I mean, unless I'm wrong. Like, when I was in high school as a teenager, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, teens. Because I'm out of touch with the teenage coolness now. And that was I'm the uncool, as Duncan mentioned. I used to be cool, but now I'm in the uncool group. But when I was a teen, I never came to high school thinking, how can I just gift to everybody (laughs) and make sure that everybody's encouraged today let me make it my personal goal to make sure everybody feels encouraged, built up strengthened and nurtured is that, maybe I'm off maybe it's changed (laughs) Every every day is that what it's like I, I doubt it. And so it's like that, that doesn't prepare us for what church is like. The cross does because Jesus gives us his life for many. So that helps us. But the world doesn't prepare us for that, right? Or I never have been to a concert and, and or a sports event thinking, man, I can't wait to really just, you know, build up and encourage and strengthen the sport. I just can't wait to make a contribution. I come to get, man, entertain me. Yeah. And maybe I'm off there. Maybe you guys go and say, I just really want to make sure everything's taken care of and you know, supported and encouraged. And Amen, that's awesome. But I find that highly unlikely. Most of our experiences in the world are designed for us to come and take. Yeah. Not come and give. We're conditioned by the world to be takers. And Paul says, the cross is about God giving his life for everyone so when you come to church, always build up. Amen. Always make sure you have everyone's interest in mind. Now, I think that's that's, that's, a, that's a great concept for our church. We're, we're pushing almost 150 members. Our church is growing. But it will not continue to grow and be sound and healthy if we all don't make sure everyone's built up. And that's the role of everyone. To come and make sure that We're all built up. And and as we expand and as we plant Wellington, there'll be more people that that need to learn that concept. But if if people just come in and think, what can I get? Our church will not be healthy and sound. And not that it's like that. You know, it it goes in in waves and, and sometimes, but I think it's helpful to know to come to church with the mindset, how can I give to build up everyone? How would that look like? Well, after the fellowship, I think we ought to see the young and the old talking and fellowshipping because we need the zeal of the youth, right? Yeah. We need that zeal. And they need the maturity of the older members. How to direct that zeal. Or to be zeal without knowledge, right? But in the fellowship, it should be older and younger members approaching one another and say, hey, let me, let me, let me have some fellowship to learn how to become a person who builds up. That's what it should look like. And, 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 and in the fellowship, there's often this kind of dynamic where some people come and they frequently just come to tell you their problems. And maybe you've experienced that. That's not always the case, but you can kind of see it in their eyes when they come through the door. They're looking for somebody to tell their problems to frequently. There's a time and place for that. But it's not church. Now, if it's a one-off thing, amen. I'm not saying don't talk about your issues in church. That's not what I'm saying. Well, I'm not talking about my issues anymore. I'm saying if you have a habit of coming and say, hey, bro, sis, let me talk to you. And and it's just kind of like, ah, that's what you always do. Then come to build up. Come to give. Come to encourage. Paul wanted the church in Corinth to know, you guys need to focus on everyone else. Always build up. Amen? And let's be that way in Auckland. Sometimes silence. Now this could be a landmine when you first read it. When he, he talks about these different instances where people need to be silent. So it's, it's important, first of all, to look at this in context. Because when you originally read it, there can be kind of a reaction. It says, women must remain silent in church. And oh boy, is that a landmine. All right, again, especially on Mother's Day. That's you know I can't find a way to present a text on Mother's Day. I told you about the blunder of presenting First Corinthians five on Mother's Day. Expel the immoral brother, and now on Mother's Day, women must be silent in church. I just can't get around it. Um, I'm trying, but in the context here, there's three groups that are told to be silent. So it's important to look at the context and not just rip that one verse out. Okay? In verse 28, Paul says, if there is no interpreter, meaning for the person who's speaking in tongues, they should keep quiet. So if I, if I was in this setting, and I think, man, I have an inspirational sermon in a different tongue, but nobody can interpret, stay silent. Because it doesn't build up the church. Alright? Verse 30 is another group that's called to remain silent. And if a revelation comes to someone who's sitting down, the first speaker should stop. So if I see, okay, looks like Olaf's getting ready for a revelation. It looked like he was. Okay, I come, I come to a stop. I'm silent. All right? That's the second group. And then in verse 34, women must remain silent in the churches. And so it sounds like, oh, well, what's the deal there? And so here's what we do know. First of all, it wasn't about women remaining silent. Because if you look at 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, when women are speaking, here's how they should do so. You guys remember that? Yeah. 1 Corinthians 11. So he's not saying women should be silent and not say anything in church. What is he saying? Well, we know he's not saying that because he's already said in 1 Corinthians 11, they're permitted to speak. When, but, but how they spoke, he gave them some, some kind of parameters on that. Now you have to imagine again, remember the scene here that we recreated? How many of you knew what Alberto was saying? Unless you spoke in Afrikaans. Yeah. And how many of you knew what Carlos was saying? Unless you speak in Philip, uh, Tagalog. And how many of you knew what Nick was saying? Not, phase <laughs> like, hey man, I was praising the Lord. I was edified. I was built up. <laughs> now, what was happening in church is... So in, in this day, in setting, some of the men, because they, they would come from different places, and English or Greek wouldn't be their tongue, so they'd have to learn that in the marketplace faster than their wives. So when they come to church, maybe they're a little bit more accessible to the language, but the wives are not. And so what began to happen is, when all this confusion starts happening, the women are like, hey, what's going on? What are they saying? Can you please help me? understand the chaos and the you can can imagine that right that's what was going on and so he's saying it's not it's not the time to edify yourself or to ask questions it's meant to be order and if you don't have an interpreter be silent if somebody else needs to be a speak and you're a prophet be silent and for the women ask the husbands at home it's not about women be silent okay that's not it at all It's about everybody needs a a certain amount of silence in order for the body to be built up. Plus, they didn't have microphones. They didn't have PA system. They didn't have slideshow. It was just like, what is going on? There was chaos and confusion. And so Paul's like, sometimes silence. That's the way to edify the body. And if you've ever ran into somebody who talks a lot, sometimes you're like, sometimes bro? silence <laughs> that's what builds up the body the most in other words sometimes you can edify the body by not saying a word because it's what's best for everybody now the men who are married will love this book it's a real book how to improve your marriage without talking about it. It's a, great, it's a great book, by the way. But the idea is that, you know, you, you try to communicate more and then you get more into trouble. Maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you haven't. But, but the idea is that let me try to be silent and understand because that's what's best for this moment. And so I highly recommend that book. It's awesome. But there's a concept in there that Paul also and God alludes to in this, in this setting. It's if, if you think you have the best gift on the block, but other people aren't built up by it, silent. And let's figure out a way for the church to be built up. Does that follow? Does that make sense? Because everybody came and they're like, oh, I can't wait to share my revelation. And, and as we saw, as we noticed, there were people like Raymond, who's like, hey, you, you guys need to hear what I'm saying. And Carlos was all fired up about something completely different. That's what was going on. Sometimes silence in order for everyone to be built up. And so I think that's helpful for us because sometimes we, we think, I'm the most important part of the service. Sometimes I'm tempted to think that Sometimes you may think whatever part you play when they come in the door The most important thing is for the kids to be signed in for them to get their name tags The most important thing is for the chairs to be set up The most important thing is for that screen and that projector and the sound and the kids and the communion My job is the most important and anybody who gets in my way. I'll triumph over them No Sometimes silence None of us are the most important bit But the most important thing is that we're all built up together. Sometimes silence. We have to be open to that concept. Lastly, we have to be open to correction. Open to correction. You know, Paul uses this this whole chapter to really correct their view on church service. If you were to visit Corinth, they, they would have thought... You know, listen to me. I'm very impressive. I'm very spiritual. I'm very gifted. And people need to listen when I speak. And and Paul says that actually, when you come together, in verse 26, what shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, let me correct the way you're at you have lots of zeal. You have lots of gifts. You have lots of talent. But when you come together, let me correct what actually happens. Let me redirect your zeal to something that builds everyone up instead of just one person. Let me redirect it. Here's how it should look. Here's how God wants it to be. And God is that way because he's a God of order, not of confusion. You have to be open to correction. And that's what he's doing. The Bible is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, training right? And so churches, individuals, we all have to be open to correction. And you've probably experienced this phenomenon if you've used a GPS or a phone or some kind of mobile device, and it locks you in to the place you're supposed to be going, and at some point you get off course. And I I always have trouble just simply starting, because I can't figure out which direction it's actually, especially if I use it in the city, and I'm trying to figure out which direction, and I'm bad with directions just generally but if i try to figure out where i'm starting i I can't even really figure out the starting point and so i end up you know taking quite a bit of time but then i I find i'm heading in the wrong direction i have to course correct and then maybe it tells me i was going in the right direction in the first point and what is going on but there's there's always this need for and these are really smart people that develop these things like incredibly smart people and Paul's point here is, yes, you're incredibly gifted. Yes, you're incredibly spiritual. Yes, you're very talented. But even the most gifted, talented, spiritual people need course correction. Don't think you're above it. You and I all need it. We all need that. What would that look like? And, and, and praise God that God is willing to correct our courses. as Before we become Christians... And after we're Christians, praise God, he's willing to correct our courses. But what does that mean? It means you and I need humility to be corrected. We always, because we always think we're in the right. We always think we're doing the right thing. We always think our gift is the best. We always think ours, but God says, let me help you redirect and change your course. If you've been a part of our church for a number of years, you know we've had some pretty serious course corrections in our global fellowship. Praise God for that. Maybe there'll be more. If you've been a disciple for more than five minutes, you've had some serious course corrections in your life. Praise God for that. And we constantly, constantly need that. And I love our church and we have a lot of great strengths. and, And most, even when we survey the church, what do they say? We have a strong family presence praise God for that but sometimes we could have a bit of correction and be more outward focused yeah. right even when people come in with fresh eyes I always ask hey wh- what do you think what's your first impression oh man this church is awesome they're family and it's kind of unanimous and I've done it enough to know that it's, it's, it's a theme yeah. man I just feel like they've taken care of me I say well what, what's one area we could work on ah you know I just feel like we need to be more mission centered man that's a course correction and praise God for that. And let's let's accept that as a church and always correct our course. And we have lots of great strengths, but I, I do think, especially as we consider looking to Wellington, we want to send a people, we want to send a team who's fired up about saving souls. And as a family at the same time. Right? And so praise God, we can always have our courses corrected. Later on in this, it says that when a speaker comes in, and if there's, being, and if there's pro- prophecy that's happening, their secrets will be laid bare. If you look at verse 24, but if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they're convicted of sin, brought under judgment by all, as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare, so they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, what a great church service you have. God is really among you. When we, when we really learn to build each other up and, and learn when to be silent and allow our course to be corrected and people come in that are guests and our friends and our family and they see, man, some, something is going on here and they feel something, whether it's in the communion or in the fellowship or the singing, and feel like, man, I feel like God was like exposing something about me. That's also the design of church. It's not just to come to let me be built up, but it's to let God's word expose the hearts of men and women who need the gospel. Amen. And for them to say, man, I, God is real. I need God. But that was not happening in Corinth. They came to the church and said, let me out of here as soon as possible because I don't know what is happening. Paul says, let's correct your course. Look at Jesus as he walks the earth, he's correcting the course of men's lives. What are you doing fishing? Come follow me. I'll give you a cosmic mission. Nicodemus, Zacchaeus, all the women that followed, I'll give you a cosmic mission. Let me correct your course. To the religious leaders who think they know stuff, Jesus, says, no, you got it wrong. Let me correct your course. To the both believers and non-believers alike, Jesus says, let me correct your course and make your life something worthwhile. This is a great passage to help us understand what ought to happen at church. 1 Corinthians 14, yes, it's a lot about spiritual gifts and and praise God for those and we want people to be gifted, but what ought to happen, what ought to really happen at church? Well, we see here that God wants us to be a community that prioritizes always building up. When you come to church, your mindset is, what can I do? How can I give? How can I build everyone up? And if you're not quite sure, doing something is better than doing nothing. And then allow your course to get corrected. (laughs) And if you're not sure, sometimes it's like, well, I, I think mine is the most important, but if it doesn't build up, let me be silent. And figure out what does build up. And all of us as individuals and as a church, let us have the humility to be corrected. So that when people walk in our church, they say, God is among you. I want to hear more about the gospel here in Auckland and in Wellington and New Zealand. Amen.